Well, good morning. Hey, it's nice to hear voices in here when I say that. Woohoo! Uh, I did film a little video from the back and put it up on the Facebook page so that people could see who's actually, we're not just making it up, people actually do show up here on Sunday morning, uh, up to about 50 of us. <clears throat> you have made it through. This is the last of the 12-week series on Revelation. And uh, I, I, my hope has been, we're in Revelation 21 and the first part of 22 today, that's where we're going to close up. But my hope has been, has been, let me say it Canadian instead of Southern American, been, that you would realize that when I look at, at Revelation, and what I think Revelation is for is less about planning our uh, end times future. I think there's things in there about it, but it's more about how we live a life of discipleship right here, right now. Which way will we choose? The way of the Lamb? The way of the beast, it's, it's, it's this struggle that goes on as these kingdoms collide until the final return. And today we come to this crowning section of the whole text, the vision of what is to come. I've said every week along the way, this is a book about now. It's speaking to our situation right now, except for today. Today it's talking about what's coming. Revelation 22, 1 to 22, 21 1 to 22, 6. That's what I'm going to read. I'm not going to read the very end of the book. You're just going to have to figure that out on your own. Um, but here we go. Revelation 21, verse 1. I reserved this one for me instead of letting somebody else read it. I thought, I'll read the good one. I make everybody else read all the hard ones, and I read the good one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murder, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters... And all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. And the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. 
The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first three foundation was jas- the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. We'll stop there. It's a fitting section to cap off a text like Revelation. There's so much vivid imagery throughout the whole book. And it needs to culminate with something spectacular. And, and this is what we see as, in, in, in our terms, we call it heaven. Or in John's words, the new heaven and the new earth. The, the restored, the renewed creation. And what I, what I want you to see as we first dig into it is it's a vision of what was and what will be. When you consider all that we've seen over the past 12 weeks, this new Jerusalem is the vision that ties it all together. And the beauty that I think of the Bible is that it comes full circle. This is not just what is coming in the future. This is a reminder of what initially was. God tells us of creation in Genesis. It was very good. There was no sin. There was perfect harmony, relationship with with God and with each other. Adam and Eve and, and all of creation was living under the leadership of the king of the universe And yet, as we are prone to do, we kind of reach for autonomy. We take control ourselves. We rebel. We seek our own way. And this throws creation into chaos. And that's that's what we're living in now. Anybody think we live in chaos now? It's a pretty fitting example of chaos in our world. Romans 8 says creation groans. The whole world is groaning because this is not what it was intended for. This is not what it is designed to be. And this vision in, in Revelation 21, 22 reminds us that through Jesus, there's this restoration of a broken world. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, what I, what I want you to see about that is there's continuity between what was in creation, what we see now, and what will be. It'll be restored. It doesn't say he's making all new things. It's not like this whole new thing that we don't even recognize. He says, I'm taking all things and making them new. 
And we, we know that's necessary. You know, fear, hatred, anger, animosity, uh, starvation, poverty, all throughout our own world. Closer to home, we see the addiction, abuse that happens right here in hope. If you want to get even more personal and get closer to home, the selfishness and the greed and the impatience that we all carry right here in our own hearts, all these things are distortions of what God intended humanity and creation to be. And the final revelation here at the end says that through Jesus, all these things that are messed up will be made new. That's the whole story of the Bible. Creation, fall or rebellion, and now here at the end we see a recreation. But, but it's not different. It's made new. It's, it's made to be what it was supposed to be. We'll look more specifically at that in a minute. But first, I want you to see one thing about this renewal. In, in 21 verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It says that again, I think, in verse 10. The new city, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And what I want you to see is the, the thing that, that helps this, the thing that moves creation um, from broken to new is, is, is Jesus coming and making it new. What we need is beyond us. The solution comes from outside of us. Jesus, you know, Jesus said in John 14, remember what he said? I go to prepare a place for you. And I, I want us to realize that what we need, and, and I think sometimes we, we just oversimplify what can fix the problem. We look at, at, at political unrest or we look at, at, at physical malady like like covid or starvation or we look at racial tensions and we just think that if we've just got to figure out how to make it better and yet the reality is the solution for the problems that we face come from beyond us education is important but it's not the answer even being of service is it's vitally important that we serve each other but it's not what's going to make a difference we don't need a new political leader or a new political party to fix the situation the answer is out of our reach and sometimes i think as human beings we just think that we can just do it if we just try hard enough we're going to make it better and it doesn't mean we don't try but it it's kind of like you know it's like if fixing this broken world is me Jeff Kuhn, who you know, designing a nuclear power plant. Now, the odds of me doing that are very, very slim. But you know what? I'm fairly, I'm, I'm okay up here. I, can, I could learn. I could study. If I worked hard enough, I could probably figure out over a period of time how to design a nuclear power plant. And sometimes we feel that way about ourselves. If we just really work at it, we can make this a better place. Now, it doesn't mean we don't need to, but what I, what I want you to see in the text, the, the solution comes from, some, from outside of us. The reality is, instead of me designing a nuclear power plant, it would be more like me playing Michael Jordan one-on-one -on -one and saying I could beat Michael Jordan. It's not going to happen. Oh, you Canadians don't know who that is. Me, me doing a shootout, a shootout with Wayne Gretzky and me winning, right? That's never going to happen. It's, I, I could not do that. And that's kind of where we, we got to realize that the only hope for this world is from somewhere beyond us, outside of us, apart from God's intervention we're we're helpless we're hopeless apart from his intervention but that's why jesus came that's why the new testament calls him the new adam he's a restart on this creation that god has made he was and is the whole key to this new city coming about now one thing about this city i want you to realize it's something might surprise you this isn't just a city this is a city 
that is a people. What does that mean? Look at 21, verse 9 and 10. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the city, coming down out of heaven from God. Come, I will show you the bride. And when he goes to see, what does he see? He sees the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now, who is the bride of Christ in, in Scripture? It's the church. It's believers. It's you and me. We're the bride. So this city coming down out of heaven is us. It's a people of God, the followers of Jesus. Somehow the new Jerusalem is not just a city. It's, it's people. And, and, and what, what this is saying is that the center of this new heaven, new earth, are the people of God made new by him. Have you ever thought when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he was talking about preparing you? That's what he's doing. He's, going, he, he's creating in us this central piece of the new creation where God will live with men. Now, I don't really understand how it all plays out, but, but the point is that God will live in the new creation in us. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. See that? There's a unity somehow there. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. See, God somehow will live in and through us. Somehow God will rule in us and through us in this new creation. We'll move on to some specifics because I, I want to kind of spell that out a little bit. And, and I'm going to steal from Daryl Johnson who wrote that great book, Discipleship on the Edge, which most of my sermon series was lifted from. I should actually pay him a commission if I was making specific money off of this because I took, took a lot of his ideas. But he... He, looking at this passage, he has a different focus, but he draws comparisons, and he looks at what we see and what we don't in the New Jerusalem. And I just want to go through those to let, give you a picture of what it is that's coming. I, like I say, I have some different points of emphasis in him, but I'm stealing these comparisons from him. First of all, what we don't see and what we do see is we don't see, there's no sea of chaos, but there's a light of glory. In verse 1 of chapter 21, it says there's no longer any sea. Remember, we've talked about the sea in Revelation, this place of chaos, this place of turmoil, this idea of the flood, destruction, lots of fear all throughout the Bible regarding the water. In, back in chapter 13, verse 1, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, this first beast. He had ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. What, what you see all throughout Revelation is the sea is this chaos, this evil, this source of everything bad. And what you see in the new city is there's no longer any sea. It's gone. You know, for us, even for us, water represents a power. You know, the, the tsunami, the big fear of a tsunami hitting. You've seen some videos of tsunamis hitting the coastline, the devastation, right? Angela, my wife, always says the bad thing about water is it doesn't even know you're there. Because it doesn't care. You fall in the river right now, you're going. It doesn't care. Water's powerful. 
And what we see in new creation is this water, this fearful, powerful thing. There's no longer any sea. What do we see in its place? We see this word over and over again, glory. Glory in Greek is doxa. We get the word doxology from it. But it literally means the heaviness of God's self-manifestation. Whatever it is that makes God God is glory. And, and, and what we see all throughout this new creation is glory. Have you ever had a breathtaking moment, one of those moments where it just kind of, you felt the weight of something bigger than you? I, I was in, just out of college, I led backpacking trips uh, through a place called Linville Gorge in North Carolina. They call it the Grand Canyon of the South. No, it's not the Grand Canyon, but it's beautiful. This picture that, that's on the screen is Table Rock Mountain, and I used to lead backpacking groups through here, and there was this spot just down the hill from this where you could look off and you could see the whole gorge. You could see the river run down all the way to the lake at the end of the gorge. It's just absolutely stunning, and my favorite time to go was in fall when the leaves turn color. That's the biggest thing I miss about the topography of North Carolina. You can show that second picture. When the leaves turn color, it's just unbelievable. It looks like Fruity Pebbles. That's what I always thought, Fruity Pebbles cereal everywhere. And I would go and I would sit on the edge of this rock looking off the gorge and I would see the leaves all the way down the, the gorge and I just, I, I couldn't speak. It was overwhelming. You ever had one of those moments where you've just seen something that just takes your breath away, right? That, that, that awe, that silence, sometimes even it can be a fearful thing when you realize how close you came to dying or something that just, you feel this heaviness and you can't really speak, that, I think, is a taste of the heaviness of the glory of God. Just a little tiny taste. I think of Isaiah in the throne room in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God in all his glory, and he falls flat on his face and says, woe is me. That's the glory of God. Now, the thing about the new city of Jerusalem is it's everywhere. 21 verse 11. It's shown, the whole city shown with the glory, the heaviness of God. The whole place shines with the glory. You see the imagery of all the jewels on the, on the, the foundations and around the side. And where do you see the glory most clearly? In chapter 21, verse 23. It says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. You see that glory, the greatest ever in Jesus. That, that heaviness of the manifestation of who God is, that overwhelming sense that you get a little taste of when you have those awe-inspiring moments, it's every single second in the New Jerusalem. That's normal. That kind of profundity, that kind of power, that kind of heaviness and awe. That's the new creation. No chaos, but glory everywhere. Second thing that we see and we don't see is there's no more curse, but there's real life. The Bible tells us after the rebellion of humanity in Genesis chapter 3 that all of creation was brought under a curse. Ground was cursed, the relationships were cursed, and damage was done that would affect everything. That Creation groans because of that, right? That's why the world is what it is today. Our, our desire to live apart from God... And do it our way has given us the world that we see. That's where we are. But in chapter 22, verse 3, what's it say? In this new creation, no longer will there be any curse. 
Look at chapter 21, verse 4. It says, um, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Imagine that. There's no more curse, but there's life. No more cancer. No more COVID. No more starving children. No more exploitation of others. No more racism. No more domestic violence. None of that. And in its place, there'll be life. Chapter 21, verse 6. He said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And in chapter 22, we see this river of life flowing out. And, and, and the tree of life is on either side of the river. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the same tree be on two sides of the river. Some of you artists can maybe figure that out for me. But it, 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 there's this picture, the curse is gone and it's all about life. And it's not, there's two Greek words for life. I've talked about this. There's bios, which we get biology from, which is like physical life, blood cells, you know, <laughs> this is what I've got, life. And there's zoe, which is the Greek word for divine life. And see, if we didn't have this zoe, if we didn't have this kind of life, you know those, when I'm talking about the glory, the heaviness of God being every, seco, every second, if bios is all we got, we're going to be crushed. But this says we have the actual divine life of God in us. So, so not only is, is the glory around us, it radiates out through us in this life. In Genesis, you read there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. You remember the story? And after Adam and Eve had, had rebelled and eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were banished from the garden so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever under the curse. Well, what kind of trees do you see here? All you see is the tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. <laughs> Talk about appropriate. The greatest, most powerful people that exist today cannot bring about the healing of the nations. doesn't matter. We've got, we've got some lovely people. As I look back through our history, we've got some people that have offered their lives to bring healing and peace to our world, and they just couldn't pull it off. And yet this kind of life offers healing for the nations. Third, no sin in the city, but lives of created service. Because of the judgment and the purging of evil that happens when the kingdom of God is fully established, there's no more sin. We saw that in 21.8. That, that all those, um, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. All evil will be purged. So there's no sin. Imagine that. Imagine if there was no sin. Imagine if, if you could trust everyone. Just imagine that for a minute. If you could actually trust everyone. If people always responded to you in a loving and kind way. If every time you were driving down the street and you heard somebody honk the horn, it was because they wanted to wave at you and not show you some kind of lovely hand gesture, right? Imagine that. Imagine if everybody in the world had everything that they needed to survive. Imagine there were no hidden agendas. You ever have a conversation with somebody and you realize they're telling you one thing, but they're thinking something totally different? Imagine if that never happened. You know, that's what we're going to see in this new creation, no sin, no sin. But lives of creative service, what does that mean? Well, I, I don't get that all, but I, I want you to see, and this is one of the things we've got to realize, it doesn't get developed a whole lot here, 
But there's this idea that we will reign with Christ somehow in this new creation. If you look at chapter 21, verses 22 to 27, actually start in verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, the light of the glory of God, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into this city, into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What is that? What does that mean? You know, it's not this static place where nothing ever happens. Sometimes I think we've done a huge disservice to the world because we've kind of communicated heaven as an eternal church service, right? It's kind of like an eternal church service. And, you know, on our best days, we struggle sometimes to go to a church service. Why would we think heaven is, is an et- a church service for eternity, right? There's a, there's a reason people don't want to go there. But, but what we see here is it's not just this, this, this static state where nothing's happening. The kings of the earth are bringing their glory into this city. We're reigning with Christ somehow. It says in 22.3, his servants will serve him. And in 22.5, and they will reign. Somehow we reign with God over his new creation. I, I, another book I would recommend, and it's a thinker. It's called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And I think he gets this concept a lot better than I do. But listen to what he says. We will not sit around looking at one another or at God for eternity, but we will join the eternal Logos. We will reign with Him in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. It is for this that we were each individually intended, both as kings and priests, from Exodus 19.6 and Revelation 5.10. We made a kingdom of priests. A place in God's creative order has been reserved for each one of us from before the beginnings of cosmic existence. His plan was for us to develop as apprentices to Jesus to the point where we can take our place in the ongoing creativity of the universe. Does that sound like a different view of the future than, than I, that's what, I wasn't taught that. I was taught we kind of go up there and we stand in front of God for the rest of our lives. And what he's saying here, and what I think the scripture's saying, is that we rule and reign with him. There's, there's this apprenticeship to Jesus where he develops us so that we can care for the new creation what Adam and Eve were originally intended to do. He continues, In due time, I can only imagine it will take some while after our passage into God's full world, we will begin our new responsibilities. Well done, good and faithful servant, our magnificent master will say. You've been faithful in the small things. Take charge of ten cities or five cities or many things or whatever is appropriate. I suspect there will be many surprises when the new creative responsibilities are assigned. Perhaps it would be a good exercise. I love this. Perhaps it would be a good exercise for each of us to ask ourselves, really, how many cities could I now govern under God? If, for example, Baltimore or Liverpool or we can say Vancouver or Hope (laughs) were turned over to me with the power to do what I want with it, how would things turn out? An honest answer to this question might do much to prepare us for our eternal future in this universe. Imagine this new creation. Remember, he's not making all new things. He's making all things new. We have this new restored creation that we as servants of the Lamb are ruling over in a way to bring glory to God. Imagine the greatest experience you've ever had. I want you to think about that, whatever it might be. I was trying to think of mine, and I mean, obviously, holding my kids when they were first born is probably one of my peak experiences. But think of the the experience where you've had the most joy or the deepest peace or the greatest happiness or the most sense of purpose in your entire life. Think of that. And realize, it's going to be better than that, and it's going to be eternal. That's why Paul struggled. Should I, should I 
depart and be with God or should I stay here? It's, it's, it, once you begin to realize that. Two more aspects of what we see and not see. No closed gates. Gates are never closed and there's a diversity of people. Because there's no sin or no evil, there's no curse, the gates are never need to be closed, right? The gates, it says, were like the, named after the tribes of Israel, which makes perfect sense. The Jews were the way we get entrance. They were the doors that were open for us to Jesus. But now they never need to be closed again. And within this, it says the glory and the honor of the nations in verse 26 will be brought into it. The ethnic groups, the peoples. Uh, one of the things I think that, that, that I'm seeing more and more is, is this diversity of cultures is a part of the glory of God. Every culture looks a little different. If you've lived in Mexico, like, like the Penners, there, there are beautiful things about that culture that we don't have in Canada. I've, I've been taking an online course from... Uh, it's a free course. You should look into it from the University of Alberta on the indigenous peoples of Canada just to kind of help me understand. And I'm realizing more and more how different, especially here, First Nations culture is from Canadian culture. We, we live in the same place, so we think we think alike. But there's some beautiful things about the, 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 the land as our anchoring point, right? That's why in First Nations culture, it's important to acknowledge what land you're on, where you're living. And the, the idea of story Right? How, how in a First Nations culture you tell your story. I was born here to this, this people and, and this is where I've come from. And, and in Canadian culture we lose some of that. We, we lose it because we, we think our, our story is about what we can do instead of where we've come from. Those are beautiful aspects of culture that are part of the glory of God. And finally, no temple. No temple in the land but face and the presence of God. See, for the Jews to think there would be no temple is inconceivable. That there would be no temple in this city because the temple is where God lived. But, but it, I won't get into the dimensions, but it talks about a perfect cube which would have had the Jewish mind go to the very center of the temple, to the Holy of Holies. That very center, that one cube in the temple where God was. And it says this whole city is the presence of God. And we will see him face to face. He'll live among us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. How how do we take this vision of this place and apply it? What is the revelation for today? I'm going to give you three phrases because I really think we need to anchor this text. It says in Colossians 3, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I think we need to focus on this image of chapter 21 and 22 to live. And I'm going to pull three phrases out. First one is, is uh, in 21.5, I am making all things new. I want you to notice something about that. It's present tense. I am making all things new. And it means live toward the promise. We need to start right now. God is making all things new. And like I said, we're we're not the ones that can fix the situation, but he's starting right now as we live as followers of Jesus in this world. See, the world is under a curse, but guess what? The followers of Jesus are not under the curse any longer. We can forgive in an unforgiving world. We can be generous in a world with, filled with greed and materialism. We can humbly serve in a world where arrogance and power seems to be the only way to get anything done. 
a great quote by Vinay Samuel, who was an Indian evangelical theologian. He says, The Christian mission today calls for a creative minority that embodies the ethics of the kingdom, lives by the power of the age to come, and invites people to leave their old ways and to believe that in Jesus Christ, a new creation has broken into history for the healing of the nations. See, I am making all things new means we need to start right now living toward that promise. Second phrase in chapter 22, verse 6, trustworthy and true. And that means we need to cultivate the longing. If his promise is trustworthy and true, we need to cultivate the longing for that because the longing for the future can drive our action in the day. You know, with kids, we don't always want to get their hopes up. When we know something's not going to come through, we won't get their hopes up because we don't want them to be dashed. Well, with this, we can get our hopes up. In fact, we need to get our hopes up. We need to realize that God's transforming the world. I should probably cut this story, but it, it just is meaningful to me, so you're going to get it whether you like it or not. When I was uh, 19, I went on a 21-day backpacking trip with my university, and we carried all our food with us, so we didn't eat a whole lot. In 21 days, I lost 18 pounds. We hiked through this Table Rock wilderness area, the pictures that you saw. Um, but I can remember laying awake in my sleeping bag at night and thinking about my mom's biscuits. My mom made biscuits that were just, it was like eating a cloud. It's the best thing in the world. And, and I mean, I probably didn't think about them before I went on that trip, but for some reason they got stuck in my head. And every night I would talk about those biscuits because I knew our trip ended on a Friday and she always made biscuits on Saturday morning for breakfast. So I knew I'd go home on the Friday, I'd go to sleep, I'd get up the next morning. And you know what's interesting? My longing for those biscuits kept me focused, kept me moving, but it also made them taste so much better when I was actually there. And, and, and that's, that, we've got to cultivate this longing for this new creation by the way we live our lives. We've got to be excited about it. It's compelling. A world where there's no sin, where there's no curse, where there's real life, where the glory of God is the very air that we breathe. Cultivating the longing for that. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another with these words. The last is in chapter 21 too. The city is prepared as a bride, which tells us to come to the table. You know, Jesus on the night before he died, he used wedding imagery. In, in that culture, um, young men would, would find the woman that they wanted to marry and they would go and they would sit down with the dad and they would negotiate the bride price. I'm still waiting for Becca's fiance to come negotiate the price with me. Um, I think a couple of camels at, word, at least. You're worth a couple of camels at least. Anyway, but they would set the price, they would negotiate it, they would agree to it, and then you know what they would do? They would drink a cup, and they would say, this cup is a covenant between us. And then the bridegroom would go away, and he would go and prepare a place for he and his bride to live, and when it was all ready, he would come again, and he would take his bride with him to the new home. And Jesus uses that very language. This cup is a new covenant, and he, he talks about, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Right? The imagery as we gather around the table that we're going to gather around, that's not here, it's coming. I keep pointing to it, but it's not in front of me. The imagery is, is that this is a wedding feast. It's, it's, and it's like my biscuit analogy. It's, we're taking a taste right now of the table, the solution for our situation to keep us hungry for the consummation. This taste increases our longing. You know, when, when Christians say, can you just taste it? 
We should know what we mean. Can you just taste this new heaven, new earth? In Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness that flows from that, we begin to taste the new creation. And the more we long for it, the more we cultivate that longing, the more powerful that longing becomes in motivating a different kind of life here and now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, your grace. I thank you for this vision. There's so much more that we didn't even touch on today about this new heaven and new earth. And God, we are confronted every day with every sense that we have that we live in a creation that's groaning, that's broken, that's full of arrogance and pride and sin and curse and death and evil. That's what we walk out these doors to face. And so as we come to this table today, help, help us to remember your promise, that your promise that's trustworthy and true, that you are making all things new. Empower us with what we eat today, this, this symbol of your blood and your, and your body. Empower us to live into this kingdom now, to live to live out of your faithfulness today to proclaim this kingdom until you come. Feed us and nourish us today because we need that. We need a reminder of where it is you're taking us and help us to be agents of peace and healing in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I started this whole series by telling you apocalypse, the, what the Greek word is for revelation, means an, an unveiling. A pulling back of the curtain. And, and the reality is that the world does not see the feasting in Zion. The world sees the brokenness and the curse and the pain and the suffering. And what the book of Revelation does is it pulls back and it says, look at Jesus. This is, this is who he is. This is what he does. This is the way he lives. He lives like a slain lamb. And by pulling back that curtain, you begin to invite the world into that wedding feast. The hope that we have. One day we're, we're, the glory of God will be the very air that we breathe. There'll be no more curse, no more darkness. That, that every pain that you feel, emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever, will be made new. Everything will be new. That's what we get to invite people to. And, and I guess my prayer for you this week is that your life becomes the apocalypse. Your life becomes the way the curtain is pulled back and people can see the love that you have for each other, the love that you have for your community. They begin to get a taste and a longing for this wedding feast of the Lamb that we're called to. God bless. Amen.